1889. A massive storm has moved into southwestern Pennsylvania. The residents of Johnstown were used to heavy spring rains and high water, but they could not foresee the disaster that was about to occur. Okay, so welcome to American Moments. I'm Adam. And this is Matt. And today is the first day of our Memorial Day weekend. What what does Memorial Day typically mean to you? Memorial Day means barbecue, means an extra day off, hanging out in the park. Although currently where we are, it is pouring rain right now, so I don't know if that's going to happen. Which is kind of appropriate for today's story. Yeah, I mean, people typically think of the Indianapolis 500, you know, remembering our vets, things like that. Today, in traditional American Moments fashion, we, we're going to make it a little bit darker. Have you ever heard of Johnstown, Pennsylvania, before you researched it? You know, I hadn't, but I didn't grow up in Pennsylvania, so that's yeah. probably why. I obviously lived there for a good good chunk of my life, and I knew about the Johnstown flood, but it was something that, uh, it's just, just something that people talked about. In, in passing, and I never really dug too much into it. On May 31st, 1889, Memorial Day weekend, one of the worst tragedies in U.S. history unfolded. We're going to break protocol a little bit today. Uh, typically, you guys just get the privilege of hearing Matt and I talk about stuff, but today we are going to have the president of the Johnstown Area Historical Association, Richard Burkert, join us. And he is just such a wonderful resource, and he's been at the museum for a long time. And uh, he agreed to uh, to come on the show and, and uh, give us his perspective on what happened. Just so everyone knows, a little background, May 31st, 1889, the South Fork Dam, which held Lake Conema at bay, uh, where the South Fork Fishing and Hunting Club was located, broke and flooded Johnstown and several other towns down downriver killing just over 2,000 people. And it was, for reasons we'll get into a little bit later, it was a seminal moment not only from a disaster standpoint, but from some of the aftermath. Yeah, horrible that all these people died and it was preventable. And, um, you know, that moment changed a lot of how uh, laws and responsibility work in the U.S. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, we're going to break protocol a little bit today and, um, and get into the interview part. So here we go. Hello, welcome to American Moments. And this morning we're throwing all convention and format out the window as today we're covering the Johnstown flood. We're approaching the anniversary of the disaster that happened on May 31st, 1889 in Johnstown, Pennsylvania. And we have a real treat today as we have the president of the Johnstown Area Heritage Association, Richard Burkert, on the show. Hey, Richard, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you, Adam. I really appreciate you taking the time to come on today. It's This is such a seminal event in U.S. history for many reasons that we'll get into. But first of all, if you could just give us a little bit of background on yourself, because uh, I know you've been at JHA for a long time and maybe a little bit more about what the organization does, and and we'll kind of take it from there. Well, Johnstown is uh, formerly a uh, important industrial you know producer, particularly steel producer. Got an amazing history when I you know, graduated, got out of graduate school. 
you know, looking at employment opportunities and the director of something called the Johnstown Flood Museum, you know, there was a job ad for it, so I applied and, and it wasn't much, but I'd read David McCullough's history of the Johnstown Flood before I interviewed and, you know, it just, I mean, this town's got it, uh, uh, a lot of interesting history uh, and immigration history are all important. So I figured I could spend some time here as an historian. But at any rate, the Heritage Association uh, was really founded to tell the story of the Johnstown Flood. David McCullough's book came out in 1968, was got national recognition, was even condensed in Reader's Digest. And uh, the organization was really founded just to tell that story. Now, in 1989, we finally were able to you know do it we renovated the former Cambria library which is uh, one of the very first of the uh, Andrew Carnegie libraries there's a kind of a more involved story there but at any rate we completed that exhibit we did a film that won an academy award in 1989 for best documentary short subject you know it was a really excellent facility uh, you know there was, there was a moment with a centennial with Johnstown Fletcher there was a lot of national attention. The organization's gone on subsequently to develop additional uh, museum and cultural facilities in Johnstown, again, to interpret the broader themes here, as well as bring other types of cultural programming to the community. Yeah, and you know what's amazing to me is, I'm from Pennsylvania, so I know this story, but this is really a huge event that not a lot of people know about. And a lot of it is just, it, it was a long time ago, obviously, but there's a lot of people who aren't from the Pennsylvania area. And people think of of Pennsylvania, they think of Pittsburgh, they think of Philadelphia, because I've driven through Western Pennsylvania before. It's absolutely beautiful. And, and kind of how we have this area in Johnstown, which really becomes a confluence of a resort town for the Pittsburgh steel magnates and mm-hmm. um, and a uh, steel mill town. Yeah, Johnstown's really got a dramatic setting uh, we're set really the headwaters of the Ohio River watershed. Uh, right to the east of us is the Allegheny Ridge, Allegheny Mountain. It divides, you know, all the water on the east side of that goes into the Chesapeake Bay on the west. You know, all the water goes into the Gulf of Mexico. So Johnstown is on, on that. Uh, there's 650 square miles of mountainous terrain that drain through Johnstown, uh, the main river, the river here, the you have two rivers that join, form the Connemaw River, which flows into the Allegheny and Ohio and Mississippi rivers. It became an important industrial community, but the scenery here is lovely. You know, you're in a mountain town. And getting back to the South Fork Dam itself, for those of us who don't understand how the canal system works. So in the, in the late summer, the western end, you know, the western, uh, there's the Portage Railroad, which you have to picture railroad tracks basically going up the side of a mountain and then through a tunnel. Yeah, they used a system of 10 inclined planes actually to surmount or descend from the ridges. So you get over the Allegheny hump, get down to the other side, and the water wasn't, and the Kahnema wasn't always very reliable. It was a mountain stream and it could be pouring or, or, or dry. And my understanding is that the Lake Conema, which was what it became after the, after the, the South Fork Dam was created, was basically built in order to get a steady supply of water to the canal. Yeah, that's correct. The Commonwealth of Pennsylvania built it. You know, it took them a long time. There were work stoppages. Actually, the Commonwealth, because of that canal system, went bankrupt mm-hmm. at one point. So they, you know, they suspended uh, 
construction, obviously. At any rate, it, you know, it was only used for several years. And then in 1857, the Pennsylvania Railroad bought the whole canal system from the Commonwealth at a bargain sale. And they got this uh, dam in Mellon Reservoir, which I didn't really need. And at uh, one point it was sold then to the South Fork Fishing and Hunting Club, which was organized in Pittsburgh in 1879. Now, it appears that the original dam, the Western Reservoir, was well constructed in accordance with engineering practice of the period. Uh, there's some new literature, well, there's been, you know, they've been investigating the causes of the Johnstown flood and the dam break for, you know, since uh, 1889. But it would appear when the club restored, there was actually, the dam had deteriorated under the railroad's ownership, and it actually breached in 1862, so it was in a bad state of repair. And the club, instead of properly repairing it, just filled up the breach. It didn't install drainage system, waste weir at the bottom, as was originally expected in the original dam. They appear to have eliminated one spillway and diminished the carrying capacity of the other. They began work in 1879, 1880. Their, work, their improvements were washed out and it started again, but they got it completed in 1881. I, you know, I didn't know that they actually had tried to do some repairs. Uh, I, everyone focuses on the fact of what they didn't do. You know, they, they ended up t- selling the pipes for scrap, too, didn't they? You know, they, they used a middleman, it seems, but we're not clear about mm-hmm. that part of it. But, you know, at any rate, the original dam appears to have been well built. A reconstructed dam was, a, you know, just an accident waiting to happen. They didn't understand the specifications for the original dam and what was needed to keep that safe. The club, uh, there were only about six members at the time they acquired the dam and did the renovations. It appears to have been an extremely shoddy job. The Cambry Iron Company here in Johnstown set their uh, chief engineer, John Fulton, up there to inspect it. General manager here in Johnstown was concerned, you know, about the club, and um, John Fulton looked, you know, examined it carefully and found a long list of deficiencies. And the Cambria Iron Company actually offered at one point to split the the, the cost of proper repair, and their their offer was spurned by the club's president. Yeah, you said um, you're in no danger from our enterprise, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Let's let's talk a, a bit about the dam itself. So uh, a lot of people think of dams as these humongous concrete structures. This was actually an earthen dam. Uh, this thing was originally built out of puddle clay with heavy riprap stone, and it had sufficient spillways for, you know, they're, they're still engineers studying this. And there was uh, some major articles that have come out in the last several years re, re-examining the Johnstown flood and even suggesting that a flood would never have happened if, if they had uh, provided in the rebuild adequate spillways. But it was, you know, it was a massive structure, 70 feet tall. Problem with it, though, is uh, having not installed the, you know, the drainage pipe at the bottom, they had to depend only on the spillways. And it appears there was an emergency spillway that that had been eliminated. And the other one had been, they'd lowered the height of the dam, which it decreased the capacity of the primary spillway. So, I mean... People didn't understand the principles of dam construction as well as they do today back then. But they, they knew, you know, if any engineer had worked on it, it would have been, you know, he would not have done what the club's agents did. 
Apparently they lowered the dam so they could get two wagons across at the same time. They lowered the dam so the, the breast was wider and so you could pass, two, two carriages could pass on the top of it. Mm -hmm. The new theory is that they took material from the top of the dam and there was a breach there in the center and uh, what they did was uh, shave down the top and help fill in the, oh, you know, okay. the dam with material, loose, you know, material that they'd taken from the top of the, the dam structure itself. We'll never know exactly what happened, but you know when you're trying to fill up a breach, it's an attractive idea to get you know material from close by, you know, particularly if you don't really understand dam design. If you don't understand dam design, the, the spillway that we keep referring to, as the water rises, the last thing you want to have happen to a dam, especially an earthen dam, is for the water to go over the top. And so a spillway is built uh, to allow the water to, to escape in kind of a, 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 I guess, a release valve methodology. Yeah. Um, exactly. And from, from what I understand, I want to be fair, but it, it, would it be out of line to say that they kind of looked at this dam as a little bit of a nuisance? You know, it was just uh, heedlessness is, I think, the lesson here. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people found the club members guilty because they were rich, basically, and, you know, killed 2,200 people in Johnstown. But I think the lesson is probably more that they participated in a project that they just trusted everyone was doing their job, and they weren't. The, so the people of Johnstown looked at the at the dam as as something that that was holding water in and just would would assume that it would uh, it would be maintained correctly. The South Fork Fishing Club uh, looked at it as as a way to keep their their sportsman paradise alive. I mean, they they erected the fish screens over this in front of the spillways, which comes into into effect later. Let's talk about the founding of the club a little bit. So uh, this is after the Civil War. You know, industry is starting to boom. How do you get to Johnstown from Pittsburgh? So it's about a two-hour train ride? It's about, yeah, two-hour train ride mm -hmm. probably back then. At the time, yeah. And, and it's east, and it's right on the Pennsylvania Railroad main line. Interstate highways have, have not totally connected Johnstown to the outside world, but we boomed in the railroad age. Mm -hmm. We were on the main line of the PRR, and members of the club would take the uh, train from Pittsburgh to South Fork Village, you know, a short distance from the club, they would take then a carriage to take them up up to the uh, dam. Well, the road led across the top of the dam to the clubhouse, and to there were at least a dozen privately built residences that had you know been constructed by 1889. It just seemed like a Camelot is the only only way to put it. I mean, it, well, it, seemed, it, it seemed very neat. It seemed like a really neat type of. It was a real escape. You I mean, got to remember Pittsburgh in this period. Period have become highly industrialized mm -hmm. as well. You know, it was more diverse manufacturing too. So that getting out of Pittsburgh in the summer months and going to the mountains we had been going on. You know, uh, since the 1850s, when transferring the railroad made that possible. Even in Canal era, people went to the mountains because it was cooler. And this was an exclusive resort. It wasn't anything fancy. It was no Newport or seaside resource that developed later. Uh, this was a, like, it was kind of roughing it a little bit. There was a hotel, cottages, but then again, you're out in the woods. The primary attraction for the men at least was uh, boating, fishing, hunting. Uh, and they'd stock the lake with black bass and other fish. You mentioned that the, they put some screens across the spillway to keep their fish from, from going over the spillway. 
Yeah, and who were some of the more notable members of the South Fork Fishing and Hunting Club? Well, when it got started, their first there was only a, a handful of members that, that helped arrange for the finance thing. And uh, the one name you'd recognize was Henry Clay Frick, who by this time uh, was uh, second in command at Carnegie Steel. He, he was the coal and coke uh, entrepreneur who joined forces with Carnegie and became what became, by the 1880s, the leading steel manufacturer in the country. Frick's an interesting character. He was there on the board when they built the dam. Membership was really, there were 62 uh, members at the time of the, the disaster. I think it was really just hitting its stride. Uh, they were, you know, doing improvements that summer. They were putting in plumbing and flush toilets and this wonderful two-story outhouse up there, which they were planning to get rid of. So the club was really just getting gone. 62 members, you'd recognize many of their names. Andrew Carnegie was a member, but we suspect that he had been active, it was earlier, and by that time he was, you know, he was going to Scotland and, you know, he had other pursuits, pursuits. Andrew Mellon. He had a castle. Yeah, he had a castle by then. You know, there are some names that have passed on. If you're familiar with Pittsburgh's history, you, you, you recognize half the names. They were the leading manufacturers and bankers and, and industrialists in that period. There was one club member, the Camperon Company bought one membership, and Daniel Morell and Cyrus Elder, you know, had that membership, and, and they they leave no commentary about it, and we're not certain how much they lose or new membership. Obviously, the idea was keep, a, keep an eye on these uh, Pittsburghers up on the mountain. That's a great segue. Painted a good picture of what life at the South Fork Club was like. And Daniel Morell, who is the head of the Cambria, I guess at that point, Iron Company, it seemed like he kind of had a, yeah, he was a member, but he kind of seemed like he had a foot in both camps where he was a, a, a Johnstownian. Well, um, I think uh, Johnstowners are more common. Okay, Johnstowner. He was a Johnstowner. But when people look back at industry at this age, even when you look at uh, you know people like Carnegie, they think of ruthless tycoons. And Cam- Cambria was an interesting thing to, for me to research because it kind of seemed like they weren't that way, and they were a bit more paternalistic about their their employees and their town. Is is that fair to say? Well, uh, Daniel Morrell was an early industrial leader, and he was a Quaker. Mm-hmm. I mean, they were they were absolutely anti-union. He crushed any attempt at unionization there. By the same token, he was a paternalist. He took care of his employees in a way that's ways that you know, other industrialists didn't do. He provided opportunities for education for steel workers. He built a lot of the municipal buildings in Johnstown, public buildings built the first industrial hospital in America. Uh, he had a, you know, he had a real moral sense. And you got to also remember that, um, you know, they were the, uh, Cambria and Morrell were the industrial leaders in the iron and, and then subsequent steel, steel industry. And then Carnegie bought in when it was a, a proven technology. You know, Carnegie uh, was viewed by his, you know, the morale as something of an upstart. He was a brilliant and competitive businessman, Morrell was older, and he saw, you know, Carnegie as this, you know, this highly competitive disruptor came in and took the technology that Morrell helped to develop, and 
you know, used it to compete with him. So he didn't have a lot of love or respect for Carnegie to begin with. So he kind of had a chip on his shoulder as far as... I'm sure he did. Can, yeah. And he would very least view their their effort with suspicion. Yeah. So so there's that tension between the South Fork Club and, and him, even though he's a member. So how did the people in Johnstown get there? I mean, what were the backgrounds of these of the people that lived in Johnstown? What did the Main Street look like? What were the customs in the area? What were the favorite baseball teams? Johnstown has been long <laughs> called... Pittsburgh and Miniature, Three Rivers, and it was a, you know, confluence. So it really was the headwaters of navigation. Little Connemaw, Stony Creek from the Connemaw, and again, that, you know, is a tributary of the Allegheny in Ohio. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, when you, um, at any rate, Johnstown, you know, well, was very much like Pittsburgh. It, it was never as large, you know, it was compact. Uh, but... You know, by 1889, there were probably, it was unconsolidated then, but there was probably, oh, at least 30,000 people living in the valley, in the, the borough of Johnstown and attached settlements. You know, 8,000 of them uh, work, uh, men worked for the Cambria Iron Company. It was a, you know, diversified economy regionally to some extent, but you had one, you know, uh, everyone depended on the Cambria Iron Company, either directly or indirectly for prosperity up here. Uh, Pittsburgh was always more of a, a diversified common just because it was so big and so many people lived there. Uh, again, a very similar ethnic mix as Pittsburgh. They're really sister cities. Uh, Johnstown, because of the, the mountains and the layout of the town, at least in the early period, uh, you know, the city sort of snaked up and down the river valley. So it wasn't as got prone to uh, become as large as Pittsburgh did. It seems like a, kind of a cool little area on payday. People would wear their best suits, and it's <laughs> almost like a carnival yeah. fair. And uh, you just get a feeling that, yeah, there's a lot of saloons and a lot of the... the, the well, that was uh, a whole way of life. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But you, you get a feeling that it was a, a pretty decent place to raise your family as well. Cambria Iron Company, the, the norm was 12-hour days in the mills. Daniel Morrell tried an eight-hour day for certain classifications, and he had to go back to the 12-hour day because nobody else in his industry would, would do that, and the competition was too severe, so they didn't get a, that eight-hour day to the 1920s. You have to understand that steel workers were, were in poverty until after the Second World War. They began to make enough to you know, become middle class, but in, the, in this period, the only way you got ahead is by getting more skills and putting on, you know, members of your family to work. It was a different economy back then. Yeah. Uh, still, it was a little less harsh here in Johnstown, and there were opportunities. The economy was booming here and nationally. And so you see these people that come to Johnstown from, you know, Somerset County, south of Johnstown. They're farm boys. They start business, and they do very well, even in the mill, with your son going in, you know, your family could get ahead. You could own a house. And obviously the town is right on the river. Yeah. And I've been there once. I don't remember too well, but it, it seems like it's there. there's some very steep hills right around Johnstown, which really lent itself oh, yeah. to a lot of flooding in the past, we're, correct? We're built on the floodplain. Yeah. By 1889, the flatland was pretty much used up. Part of the city they had developed by that time. Uh, it stretched, you know, further south and west later. But, I mean, it's not unique to Johnstown. Pittsburgh uh, is on a giant floodplain. Pennsylvania has more communities living, uh, 
sighted on the floodplain than any other state. And that's just historic settlement and travel patterns. The rivers were the first roads. You're using boats and flatboats and canals. You know, cities and towns sprung up along the rivers. And now in retrospect, you know, that's not a great planning idea. And, you know, there's been a lot of, a lot of effort at flood control, flood mitigation, and even move, you know. But but as a Johnstown resident in 1889, you have grown up with flooding being a, just a fact of life. Yeah, it flooded in seven of the eight years. You had, mm-hmm. the streams were up out of the banks in seven of the eight years, springs, before the 1889 flood. And a lot of environmental, you know, a short-sighted environmental consequences. They denuded the hillsides and encroached on the rivers. The Cambrian Company would pour mold and slag into the rivers and then build on it. You know, people had cut the rivers. They didn't really understand. They thought they'd dig deeper channels, but they're already down to bedrock. And and they built bridges and encroached on the river. So, you know, it was man's act as well as, you know, the the location. I mean, there's floodings going back to the the beginnings of the settlement here in the late 18th, early 19th century. But it was getting worse in 1889. If you could, can you take us up the valley uh, of the Little Kanama and the the path that it takes to get up to the South Fork Dam. Now, there's a bunch of different towns on uh, you know yeah. on the way up. Just to start out really quick, how how much higher is the South Fork Dam? Or well, the dam up? is uh, further up on the Allegheny Mountains, and so it's 410 feet above Johnstown in elevation. Path of the flood was uh, 14 miles long, gone up from the borough of Johnstown. The next community was uh, Woodvale. There were some subsidiary industries. They had a woolen mill there and brick works that were owned by the Cambria Iron Company. Then you had East Connemaw and Franklin. East Connemaw was the uh, Pennsylvania Railroad town on this side of the ridge. The other side, Altoona, was you know really their manufacturing headquarters. But in this side, they had a half round house and. You know, everybody, a lot of people that men and worked for the PRR lived in East Connemaw. From there, you go up the Little Connemaw Valley, which is very narrow, and there's very little opportunity for settlements. And there's only one little village on the route of the flood in that section of the Little Connemaw Valley. That's Mineral Point. But it was also a chair factory owned by Cambrian Company, once again, up there. They... Uh, Hey, chairs for sale in the company store here in Johnstown. That was uh, basically shaved off by the flood. Um, then there's this giant uh, railroad viaduct that uh, was built for the Allegheny Portage Railroad. You reach South Fork uh, Borough uh, floodplain there. You know, that that's a much bigger area. And that area was, was hit by the Johnstown flood, and, you know, shortly after the dam broke. And then you follow up South Fork of the little column to the dam itself and the club complex. Okay. So it was pretty much, no one, you know, no one knew what was going on in the valley. And there had been momentary telegraph messages, you know, warnings, but basically no one knew what had gone on. So communications up and down the valley at the time, how was that done? You know, from South Fork to Johnstown? Um, you know, this is just kind of an important piece of information um, as the story unfolds. There was no road even. Even to this day, there's no way to drive down that river valley. You can go down into it really at one point. 
between South Fork and Johnstown. So it is pretty remote. The legend of the dam falling causing a complacency towards warnings about the potential and then subsequent failure of the dam. Can you tell us a little more about that? Yeah, it broke once before Mm -hmm. in 1862, and uh, pretty much people knew it was a bad dam. There's supposedly rumors every year the dam's going to break or getting worse or something. Um, but, you know, ultimately no one knew. No one knew what the condition of the dam was. They weren't allowed to go up there and look at it. As the club had guards. The other thing was no one knew what the consequence would be. Uh, in 1862, when it broke, the dam had been half drained down and it released, it had been the remaining water released slowly. And so it took out one small bridge. Uh, it was a low water period, too. It was in July, so that, you know, no one had any idea what the consequences would be. It seems like they had just been used to this, and you have people who are used to having water up to their to their front porches all the time. Yeah. All right, thanks for that background, Richard. Um, why don't we go ahead and jump in? Can you give us some details about the events of the 29th through the 31st? Kind of what happened and what led to the um, the dam breaking? You had a uh, large storm that came out of the Midwest, and it was considered to be a rare, you know a heavy storm at that time. There was a fair amount of observation, weather observation and recording at the time. You may have had eight inches of rain over two days in areas around Johnstown, not less up on the mountain actually. But you know they've gone back and studied this, and meteorologists have predictions about flood. Floods and they, you know, they have a hundred-year flood, a five-hundred-year flood, and and this was a twenty-five-year flood, eighteen eighty-nine. We had a rain that you could predictably get. You know, it, it was an extreme event, but not so rare that you would obviously, you know, today they built for the five-hundred-year flood. Back then, you know, this was a predictable flood. Uh, the engineering profession chose to overestimate the consequence, you know, the size of the rain. You know, in retrospect, that, you know, that was was bad rain, but we've gotten many uh, worse uh, water flows uh, since then. Everything I read, it just makes it sound like an apocalyptic storm, so it really wasn't that big of a storm. It was a big storm, but it was a predictable storm. So, and as you mentioned, the dam used to be half full. Well, they, in that period, when the PRR owned it, they drained it down, uh, but it was always meant to be full. It, so it, on uh, May 30th, it's, it's full, as is we have uh, fish screens in front of the spillway so, to not let the game fish out, and it's really coming down. And John Park was the was the administrator, correct? No, he was a resident engineer. He was oh, a recent so he graduate was the engineer. Okay. from yeah. Cornell, and he was... From what I can tell, he was there leading a crew of workmen to put in uh, plumbing. It sounds like there was a, a lull in the rain, and then he wakes up the next morning, and it's come up about two feet. Well, it's freezing, you know, you know, by morning, it was coming up a foot an hour. And it was really clear it was going to overtop the, the spillway and the dam itself, which would they, he knew. I mean, he an engineer. He was an engineer, so he knew that would you know, the dam would fail if they couldn't somehow keep it from overtopping the dam. But but he did try to remediate it somewhat, didn't he? I mean, wasn't he looking at <clears> it? Well, there were two things. They tried to uh, free the spillway, but they couldn't do it. You know, with all the uh, fishnets, you know, had been so tangled with wreckage. 
they tried plowing up this spillway, I mean, the dam top to raise the level, and that was a little bit too little, too late. Um, they started excavating a second spillway and found that it went really quickly and water started uh, going out that way. But then after they reached about two feet in depth, uh, you know, they hit like solid rock. And so they couldn't go any further. And that we believe now uh, was the remains of the original emergency spillway. So at any rate, they, they did uh, on a, on a limited basis reopen the second emergency spillway but all of it was you know too little too late water started over the top about noon on friday may 31st and then so it's clear it's going and and he is trying to get messages down the valley and it's not just one of those things where i type a message to johnstown it has to go through several stations correct yeah well there there's a couple things there's a local guy uh that goes down and, and tells tells people in Southport. Uh, John Park, no one knew who he was. He goes down to the the station, the telegraph operator down there, and he, you know, and he's unknown. He says, uh, "Telegraph Johnstown Dam's getting worse, and, and it's going to break, and it may break." And so they, you know, uh, they're not quite sure who he is and what they should do. But eventually, uh, Emma Aaron felt the telegraph. That was one job that was open to women. Uh, back then, apparently, but uh, she telegraphs down to Mineral Point and tells the agent there that uh, this guy, you know, told her that the dam's getting worse, and you know he then conveys that down to Johnstown. You know, there's some indication they put in phones that spring, so there's some indication that the telegraph operator or they call, you know, around and called the subscribers, but the problem was that the city had uh, three to 10 feet of water, you know, big flooding already with that heavy rain. And so people really couldn't evacuate. So they, they were sort of hunger down, waiting for the water to go down. So no, hardly anyone got the message. And secondly, they weren't sure what to do because they were stranded. So it's generally accepted, I think, from, from my research, and you'll probably tell me I'm off, but somewhere between uh, 2.30 and 3, the dam breaches. Yeah, we had more certainty a while ago. And again, some new research indicates that it broke earlier. The accepted time was around 3 o'clock. You know, it takes around an hour to reach Johnstown. It sounds like the dam didn't explode is the way you think of it. It just more moved. And, uh, and yeah, the eyewitnesses describe it as sort of melting away. Yeah. Now, it made a, you know, a thunderous noise when you have hundreds of thousands of tons of dam material and everything giving way. You know, it was a deafening noise, but it moved away kind of slowly. It just melted. It took 35 minutes to drain the reservoir. And so John Park is is down at no he's well, he's back up at the club by that time okay. and sort of helplessly watching as the dam gives way. As is uh, John Unger, who's the president of the club, and he represents the uh, club's membership. He has a house and he lives he lives up there year round. You know he he was responsible for the whole thing and just watch it all you know the whole investment <laughs> disintegrate. So the the dam comes down and and it's funny because people thought that even if the dam did break 
it would only be a 10 foot high wave or something like that. But the they didn't know what the consequences they had no be. idea. So the water, the water starts moving its way down and then it hits, it, it seems like at several times it's, it's just this massive behemoth of water and it's picking up all this wreckage. As you mentioned, it's kind of crashing on top of itself. It kind of recreates Lake Kanama a couple times on its way down when it hits a few obstacles. Yeah, all this is the physics of flood wave, path, and the obstacles. All this is fascinating. We run the Johnstown Flood Museum, and we're trying to use digital media to explain all this more concretely. But basically, the physics is the flood wave came down the river valley. The bottom of the wave hit the you know, river bottom, and because of the friction, it was traveling slower than the top. And the top was co- constantly cascading over the bottom. And so what you had was basically half, half a wheel. Yeah, you know, it was like a ball. It formed a ball that pushed everything ahead of it. Or nearly 80-ton locomotives were pushed as far as a mile by the power of that wave. There's even a, a phenomenon known as the flood wind, where large hardwood trees would be seen to snap off just a moment before the, the wreckage hit. But you had... You know, a lot of people had no idea what the flood was because it was pushing ahead of it this massive wall of wreckage that it picked up coming down the river valley. By the time I got to Johnson, I had barbed wire, and it was all shrouded in this black. So it's coming down the, the valley, and, I, and one of the coolest descriptions I heard was it almost looked like a dust storm of fire because it was so black, and, and it just looked almost like a fire. You know, as a cane, he, there's uh, these two hills, Prospect Hill and Cover Hill and Johnstown, right above, kind of narrow the the river valley. And so when Johnstown, when the flood wave reached Johnstown and came into the downtown area, the borough of Johnstown, it was estimated to be 37 feet at its highest height. And it was this big grinder that pushed ahead at all kinds of wreckage uh, right there at that, that notch was Gautier Steel, which was a wire mill, and, you know, they made uh, a lot of agricultural specialties. So the flood wave hit the furnaces there, and they exploded, so we had, this, you know, all this black dust, and a lot of people had no idea what it was until it was all, you know, right on them, and they realized it was water. And, you know, some people thought it was the apocalypse. One yeah. of the cool stories is the John Hess train whistle. Oh, yeah. John is a bona fide hero. Now, you know, there it was funny. After the flood, there was a rush to the newspapers, created all these flood heroes that didn't really exist. But, you know, average people in their everyday lives did a very heroic deeds. And, there, you know, a lot of those are just, most of those are not, were anonymous. But one that is remembered is John Hess, who was a Pennsylvania Railroad locomotive operator. Now, with all that rain, there have been landslides and sections of the track have been been closed and trains were being held, you know, even in East Conema. And so he uh, has had a work train up the little Conema River Valley several miles. And he heard the flood wave and figured out what it was. He actually said he never saw it, but heard this deafening rumble, realized what had happened, put his train in reverse and tied down his whistle and shrieking back into East Conema. And that whistle gave momentary warning to all the residents in that area. Hess ran to his house, got his family, you know, his wife and 
and children and successfully got them up to higher ground before the flood wave hit that eastern end of the valley. Uh, a lot of a lot of people back then, it, it, I didn't realize that train whistles were almost signatures. It, like yeah. If you heard a, if you heard a train whistle, you'd know whose train it was because of the pitch. And what he did is he threw his train in reverse and just blew it constantly, which anyone who lived at that time would have known that that there was something was very there's something very unusual going yeah, on. Exactly. Yes, yeah, certainly he gave he gave critical warning to folks in that eastern end of the valley. So what happens to East Connemaw? East Connemaw, you know, the lower lying areas demolished. The, um, a lot of people had time to go out. The East Connemaw, though, was the, there were several trains there, two trains. They um, express, you know, two passenger trains. The one conductor was able to get people to safety. The uh, You know, the other one, they stayed in their cars and mostly drowned. I mean, it was tragic, all these people. A lot of the unidentified were passengers on these these day express that were, you know, out of Pittsburgh or, you know, heading heading east or, you know, and were stopped in Johnstown because of the landslides. Uh, next on the flood's path was Woodvale. It's it's a, you know, just a straight shot from East Connemaw. Actually, there's, there's uh, right outside of East Connemaw, there was Bridge 6, and this is new research. It was a smaller iron bridge, not the big stone bridge, like at uh, Mineral Point the Connemaw Viaduct, but this one apparently held back the flood wave long enough that it regained its momentum. So it was the, you know, its final advance on Johnson, it was traveling like 40 miles an hour. And uh, Woodville was the Cambria Iron Company's model town. So a couple hundred uh, white frame houses, uh, all the workers that worked in these ancillary industries. Some people had time to get to higher ground, but Woodville, you know, everything, every, there was just, you know, uh, one wall, the woolen mill, and a, a weird uh, passenger, uh, like pedestrian bridge was remaining. Everything else was shaved off. That part of Johnson had the highest per capita loss of life. Wow. It's terrible. You meant, So you mentioned Woodville. It, it, that was the last stop before it hit Johnstown. So yeah, and then point, the, there's yeah. locomotives, there's tree debris, there's barbed wire, there, all this stuff is incoming uh, in front of a the 30 foot high wave. A lot of the, the brunt was taken by one of the hills from in front of the town. Well, the flood wave as it came into downtown Johnson, you said it was over 30 feet high. And it, you know, there there's a really kind of broad floodplain here in Johnstown. And the wave actually broke into several major currents, three currents. And they cut, one of them followed a little, you know, little Connemaw down along the northern side of John, the downtown. One basically went straight and went through right through the center of the down, you know, Johnstown borough. And then one went up Clinton Street, Bedford Street, and that's where the Holbert House was, the big hotel. And they all did uh, huge amounts of destruction. They, all those currents eventually hit against uh, Yoder Hill, uh, now called Westmont Hill, you know, the big ridge, you know, on the far side of Johnstown. And when the wave crashed against uh, the hill, it spent a lot of its energy and then formed like a big eddy John, downtown Johnstown. A lot of it then backwashed up the Stony Creek as, you know, as far as three miles. And did a lot, even as a backwash, did extreme damage in Kernville and Hornerstown. Uh, the downtown area, 
you know, you had major swaths of destruction along Little Conum, along that that Clinton Street corridor. I think that they uh, one uh, interesting uh, anecdote here is that the middle wave was parted by this massive stone Franklin Street Methodist Church, you know, right on the uh, edge of Central Park. This massive stone church held and part of the flood wave and saved all these buildings like Alma Hall, which were sanctuaries for hundreds of people that night. The wave then eventually regains its momentum. Uh, all that wreckage gets packed against the seven arches of the Pennsylvania Railroad Stone Bridge. And that had been built just a few years before the flood. All the wreckage, you know, covering 30 acres to depths up to 30 feet high is packed against the stone bridge. You know, not just all the houses and barbed wire and everything, but also many, many, many people who rode the wreckage, you know, entangled in that mass. The survivor stories are, you know, they're just amazing how people survived. Their houses broke off, broke up, and they're riding a roof and back, washing back and forth in the current, and finally being able to get to a place of sanctuary. You know, there's hundreds, just amazing stories of of uh, uh, Johnstown flood, you know, survivors who, uh, you know, live to tell a story, which, you know, uh, I'm sure they told many times during the rest of their, their lives. What's your favorite one? Victor Heiser, teenage boy, 16 years old. His parents died in the flood. He was riding a piece of roof and then a mattress and... You know, he almost dies multiple times. Dad McCullough interviewed him, so we have this wonderful tape of uh, him in his 90s, you know, recollecting that uh, the flood in that period afterward. But, uh, you know, he eventually, you know, his raft crashes against a building. He's thrown through a window into a part, you know, the upper story of a house and then backwashes and, you know, follows the flood currents. And eventually he's... Uh, you know, in a wreckage behind the stone bridge, he's able to, to make his way to land. He's a keen observer in that, uh, you know, in that period after the flood. He eventually became a doctor. By the end of his life, he was head of the World Health Organization. And, he, you know, he said basically that he would he had never gone anywhere. He'd have stayed in Johnstown the rest of his life if he hadn't lost his family. And everything had changed because of that great disaster. But there's a wonderful treasury of, of lore there you know, flood survivors. That's awesome. A lot of people had uh, ridden wooden improvised rafts down the, the, the flood. And now all this wreckage is caught at the stone bridge and you have just survived uh, a possible drowning only to get to a worse fate. I, I don't know what starts the fire, but there's multiple, I guess, theories, but a, a fire starts in all the wreckage. Well, it's, I think it's pretty clear. At least, uh, at least I know what they claimed at the time. Uh, there, there was fuel. I mean, all this wood it was wet, but there were train car, uh, tank cars full of kerosene. There were box cars full of lime, which I guess will burst in, into flames if it's exposed to water. But the really thing that started to go on was all these houses with their coal stoves burning got washed, you know, into the stone bridge, and with fuel there. It, it started in the you know, early evening of May 31st. Actually, there were several fires in downtown Johnstown caused in a similar way, you know, by 
coal stoves and, and floating houses. You know, the St. John's um, Church burned down to the waterline that night. But the Stone Bridge, it um, is a massive conflagration. It's it's hard to know. I mean, people died, survived the flood and died, ended up dying in the flames. It's unknown how many. There were, you know, bodies recovered, but no one knows the cause of death. At any rate, it certainly led an extra dimension of horror to the already disastrous event. It burned for three days until the Pittsburgh Fire Department was able to come in and put it out. And even at the time, there were authorities who recommended just let it burn to suppress the danger of an epidemic happening here in Johnstown. It's a horrifying. It became really the, there's uh, commercial prints showing the fire at the Stone Bridge. And I think probably you know, were widely distributed on every barroom wall in America at the time. Yeah, and you can find pictures online. Symbol on for bridge. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's, it's pretty... Well, it was a massive publishing event as well, so photographers, Bonanza. Yeah. History says there was a lot of help from around um, Johnstown. Can you give us some examples and tell us a little bit about those other communities that pitched in and helped? Some of these telegraphs messages had made it down to Pittsburgh, uh, specifically to Pitcairn. Pitcairn's a member of the club, too. Yep. And he sees, he, you know, because of the, the heavy rain and the damage to threats, he's coming up to inspect, and he can't even get into the west end of Johnstown. He's being held, and they see bodies and wreckage coming, you know, tearing by in the little, in the Connemont River. And so uh, from Sang Hollow, which is just below Johnstown, he telegraphs first message out of the valley, you know, great disaster occurred in Johnstown and, you know, send undertakers kind of thing. And, um, you know, that was the, you know, first message the outside world had of Johnstown's plight. You know, that night was awful. I mean, people, people were performing, thousands of people were huddled in temporary places of sanctuary and attics or, you know, whatever refuge they could find. What I think is really inspiring here is before any outside authorities could get to Johnstown, Residents, you know, began organizing their own relief up on Adams Street, which is like 20 feet out, the upper end of Johnstown, just barely outside of the flood district. Hundreds of of men start uh, meeting to organize relief, and there's all these committees appointed: a finance committee, a, a more committee. There's even a committee to remove the wreckage. Now, who's going to do that? It took country's charity and 10,000 hired men to do that, but, you know, some guys signed up to clean up the town, which was nothing but wreckage. I mean, it's pretty amazing, and the town was under local authority for a couple of days, and, you know, the, the town got back to normal faster than anybody today could expect. By uh, 4th of July, the streets were cleared, you could walk, you could actually go to Central Park and uh, buy ice cream six weeks after the disaster. Uh, that took a lot of help. The Pittsburgher, uh, Tom Scott, head of the Pennsylvania Railroad, took over the relief effort for two weeks, and then the governor appointed the head of the militia to head up the relief effort, you know, given the public emergency. And they, uh, General Hastings, you know, was, came as a Civil War very veteran, and he came in and kind of established a orderly, uh, you know, recovery period. Well, part uh, of it was the fact that the ironworks were still standing, too, correct? Well, the, the ironworks were badly damaged, 
but the ambassadors back in Philadelphia quickly decided they, you know, would uh, reinvest in that. They, they had an investment of about $17 million in the works here in Johnstown. And it's estimated they suffered $3 million worth of damage, mm-hmm. which was a lot of damage. But they decided to, you know, reinvest and restart the mills. And the town is, there's immediate relief and there's a long-term recovery, which ultimately, you know, rebuilding roads and bridges and, you know, the whole building a new town. The town was well on its way back to normal in six weeks. But, you know, it was uh, three years after the flood that they ceremoniously put the, the disaster behind them. You know, it took uh, the charities fascinating. You had uh, $2.9 million in cash alone biggest charitable effort up to that time came in from donations from across the country and well foreign countries. Uh, you had goods of every kind just as the railroads that were rebuilt, they rushed relief effort, you know, into Johnstown. So people were fed and clothed. Doctors came and the, uh, the injured were cared for. So they avoided an epidemic here. So let me ask you this. How did the flow of information from Johnstown really get out? Because, I mean, this isn't the age of CNN. There aren't three major news networks on television. The news kind of comes out. You know, people know bad things have happened. We don't have FEMA at this point. What kind of organizational, I guess, prowess did the state of Pennsylvania and the federal government have to respond to this type of... uh, Oh, very limited. That was back in a period when the government didn't do much. The uh, governor sent the head of the militia here to oversee the recovery of Johnson, and that's about it. Mm-hmm. They tried to pass a recovery bill, and the government didn't do uh, flood relief, disaster relief, and so it was never funded. Uh, there was some lobbying in Washington, but likewise, the federal government, all they did was have the Corps of Engineers bring in some pontoon bridges. So that was the extent. I mean, Johnson actually makes an interesting study, because, you know, we've had multiple floods, and and the last one was almost entirely state and federal funds that helped Johnstown recover. first one was almost entirely private funds. We are talking about getting the word out. The newspapers sent correspondents flocking here from the, you know, Eastern and Midwestern dailies. You know, millions of words poured out of Johnstown for weeks and months afterwards. And the first news was very inaccurate, but it sparked this, this sentimental response at the horror of the Johnstown flood. So people, again, they were collecting goods of every kind, but thousands of groups organized relief. Pittsburgh was the first to do an organized relief effort, but eventually the governor appointed a Pennsylvania Relief Commission. So, you know, money came from everywhere. People weren't used to reading about disasters. You know, today, we, you know, we there's a, a terrorist act or a disaster you get kind of uh, inured to some of that. A lot of people do. Back then, this was, you know, people shocked by what happened. And then they threw all their good sentiments into aiding the survivors here. Can you tell us um, what the long-term effects were of this storm? You know, specifically um, how it, it changed law in America. And then tell us a little bit about, um, you know, the American Red Cross. I know this was a big moment for them. Well, Clara Barton, this was, she's an interesting person. She had been involved in the, uh, you know, war relief in Europe, and she chartered the American Red Cross. You know, in addition to war relief, she ordered, for the first time in Red Cross's history, peacetime disasters. 
and she had responded to a couple forest fires or whatever before the Johnstown flood. But here in Johnstown, uh, she was, you know, she intended to uh, prove the Red Cross's worth in just this type of disaster. She came here on June 5th. It took her five days to get in from Washington, brought a small team with her, and they were here for five months. It's estimated that something like 25,000 local people received some sort of direct aid from the Red Cross, blankets, clothes. Well, she built supply depots, but she built four Red Cross hotels that were uh, provided shelter for uh, you know homeless people until they could get, get their life back, back together and build a home or find other temporary shelter. After this disaster, was there any pressure to give up the town and not rebuild? There were some people left. Uh, they deliberately sent a lot of the women to the, you know, Atlantic City just to get them out of here during the recovery period. You know, children, you know, families and get them out of the, the rough conditions here. Typically, people stayed. The one thing they did do as the town recovered was try to rebuild in, in higher or very much higher places. The uh, new town of Moxham being built that you know, parts of that were outside of the floodplain, so that had a real impetus. A lot of people rebuilt on the same lots. They <laughs> you know, had to work hard to, you know, survey to determine where the streets and lots were, but they rebuilt. They're really uh, uh, one effort at uh, living above the floodplain was uh, the Cambria Iron Company owned the hilltop to the west of Johnstown, and, you know, a month after the flood, they announced they're going to build an incline railroad and they're going to lay out the hilltop for suburban purposes. And that railroad opened up on June 1st, 1891, two years after the disaster. They were selling lots like crazy up there by 1895. 500 people lived on the hilltop. Wow, I, I can imagine that would be attractive after a big flood like that. Yeah. So how many people actually perished in the flood? Well, that was hard to determine, but, mm -hmm. you know, it's best that the uh, Tribune did, Democrat to, compiled that sometime after the flood. An official number is 2,209, which includes third were never found, 800 were not identified. So there's some ambiguity in this all. We have a lot of relatives who, or, who believe their forebears have died in Johnstown. We, you know, they're not on the official list. But the official number is about 2,200. There were about 30,000 people living in the valley. Maybe 20,000 were in parts of the town that got struck by the flood wave. Amazing. So about one in 10 died. And the amazing thing is that uh, more survived. I mean, the death toll estimates until a month later, you know, 10,000 rather than 2,000. And, you know, then they started coming down. But the actual number was phenomenally low considering the ferocity of that disaster. So I can imagine that everyone must have been up in arms and just enraged with the South Fork Fishing and Hunting Club. What was the response from the members? And was there any sort of lawsuits? There were lawyers. Reed Smith was the firm then. They were members of the club and, you know, they represented the club. There were coroner's or inquests that charged the club with manslaughter, and those criminal charges were unsuccessful. There were several suits, you know, numerous ones, that tried to 
uh, you know, reference to sue the club for damages and lost life. And, you know, ultimately the club, there was a, you know, there was a different stand, you know, the Johnstown flood helped to change the standard of, of liability in the United States. You know, Pennsylvania changed, you know, not long afterwards for a stricter, uh, higher level of liability. But at that time, the club was pretty much exonerated as far as, as civil liability, they, you know, they were organized the South Fork Fishing and Hunting Club. So uh, the club itself had extremely limited assets. So there wasn't much to fight over and no damages were ever paid. You know, I think if the flood would happen today under similar circumstances, you'd be able to go and attach those big fortunes and pay damages to residents in Johnstown. That time you couldn't do it. In that post-Civil War period, there were, you know, there were rich people in America for, for since its founding. But in that post-Civil War period, you had these huge industrial fortunes that were controlling politics and suppressing strikes. And the, the, the term robber baron had just been coined. And a lot of Americans read this as just another example of how, you know, how the robber barons were you know, above the, you know, can you keep a democracy when you have these wealthy people who could get, you know, as they put it, got to get away with murder, that control government. You know, that sentiment, you know, eventually developed a progressive movement, populist and then progressive movements, where you did have a lot of reform, you know, restricting the rights of capital and capitalist businessmen, you know, for the common good. Uh, there were some efforts to reform, but there was a lot of popular concern about that at the time. And uh, this fits into the outlook. I mean, robber barons and their leaky dam and they're up there vacationing and then all the working men of Johnson end up dead. The true story is far, far more complicated than that. But I think it's interesting to understand how many Americans saw this at the time. Well, that's one of the things that really drew me to this story was how this was such a this tragedy, and it is an absolute tragedy, but it also represents the confluence of America at the time. You know, you have the, the, the rich tycoons at their getaway, uh, yeah. you know, just with scant regard for the, the work. Seeming people. scant Hello. regard. Yeah. They didn't talk. They didn't talk. I mean, certainly they had to have been profoundly affected by this. Mm -hmm. It was only uh, within the last 25 years that we've actually been able to find photographs of life at the club. I mean, this was a scandal and it was a horror, and club members distanced themselves from it, not surprisingly. You know, what they really thought, you know, they they don't leave, they never left that for us. Um, but, you know, certainly uh, it was a different America after that. One that realized uh, we're in a period where we're controlling everything, you know, uh, uh, steam and water and electricity. And we were unleashing all these new powers. Well, there was a downside to all this and there's danger. And we had to behave more responsibly. And, uh, you know, the club wasn't so much guilty as of homicide as they were of, you know, oversight or, you know, they trusted people that were in position as much as the people in the Valley trusted people in charge. So did the club members. Out of this comes the Red Cross, the, the change to strict liability. Unfortunately, Johnstown was not out of the woods from a flood perspective. They did not rebuild the South Fork Dam, obviously. I mean, I'm assuming after that point, no one wanted anything to do with the club rebuilding a dam. Uh, was there ever a push for that? 
No, no, there was uh, yeah. the, the club members never came back. Eventually, the the uh, property was sold for taxes more than ten years later. Can you tell us a little bit more about Johnstown? What happened afterwards? Um, we know this wasn't the the only time that they had issues with flooding. Cover here was amazing. Twenty years after the flood, the population of Johnstown had actually doubled. The output of the steel mills had quadrupled. So. I mean, it was just a temporary uh, interruption in Johnstown's progress. I mean, you know, uh, time, the demise of the steel industry made for some tough times in Johnstown, some real dislocation here in the 80s and, and 90s. Uh, that, and dealing with an economic dislocation is harder in many ways than dealing with, you know, dealing with a natural disaster. But yeah, Johnstown's best years were ahead of it. It's just amazing how resilient a community can be, and, and that's really kind of the, the, the heartwarming part of the story. Well, um, you had two subsequent floods. They, yep. you know, they could never reconfigure the rivers. They set the wisp by by ordinance, but you know, the, you know, there were fl- frequent floods after 1889, and in March 17th, 1936, you got a second killer flood. It wasn't a flash flood. It was a record uh, snow melt with additional water, and the deaths were minor, and few of them were from drowning. But it did immense property damage, $44 million in Johnstown at the depths of the Depression. Water reached heights of 14 feet and sat there for you know, over 24 hours. And this was a real blow. And, you know, you had people that survived the 1889 flood that were still living. Uh, you know, they had a letter-writing campaign, and you know, march on Washington. And they began to demand that something be done to help Johnson, uh, prevent Johnson from suffering these floods again. Franklin Roosevelt was present in a speech in August of 1936, pledged flood control for Johnstown, and he was able to make good of it in 1938. Congress passed legislation that authorized the Corps of Engineers to rebuild nine miles of rivers here in Johnstown. From 1938 to 1943, they rebuilt nine miles of rivers here in Johnstown, <clears throat> widened them, deepened them, and then built the concrete river walls to prevent back erosion. Chamber of Commerce, Commerce went out and declared Johnstown. You know, we were known as the flood city for the 1889 flood, and Johnstown rechristened itself as the flood-free city. And so it went as years, so it seemed as years went by, you know, in Hurricane Agnes in 1970. Too in uh, Pennsylvania did billions of dollars for the damage, but Johnstown stayed high and dry. But you know, you can all when you're on a floodplain, you could always depend on nature to do the unexpected. And the night of July 20th, 1977, we had a new record rainfall. The Corps started up calling this a 500 year flood. I think it's been reduced, but it's, it's an extremely freaky event. Some areas you had uh, 12 inches of rain and you know, six hours. So a totally unprecedented rainfall. Channels were overtopped. One dam, one larger dam broke that night. 85 lives lost in that most recent flood. Johnstown, of course, is no longer the positive myth that believes that it's flood free. They've gone on to, you know, there's early warning systems, emergency, you know, warning systems, floodplain zoning now, there's ways to mitigate flooding. They've rechannelized a lot of these smaller streams around here that were killers that night. Uh, although the main stem of the river is 
But over top, the worst destruction was caused by these little streams that feed into the main river system. And no one even knew their names, but, you know, they were killers that night. So, you know, Johnstown now, I think, great cost over 100 years is, you know, learned, you know, how to, to live on the floodplain. And I think other communities, you know, can learn from what Johnstown has gone through. Truth is, you can't prevent flooding can't stop flooding you can only mitigate its effects live in the understanding that nothing you know nature nature is unpredictable yeah it'd probably be better not best to not say it's floodproof again right we don't say that and <laughs> you know again there's proper uses and you know corps of engineers the flood insurance program know the elevation of your property you know you can flood you can mitigate your you know flood hazard and in, in Johnson's way, ways to architecturally make your your home or your business more less prone to flood damage. You know, there's a. I mean, I think it's a far safer and smarter community than it was in 1977. Wow, what a fascinating story! It's an amazing story. We have the time chance right now to tell this story. I mean, I mentioned that we're in the process of planning new exhibits and major upgrades at the museum. And this time we're going to include the 36 and 1977 floods as well as a kind of bigger story, not just the amazing 1889 flood, but, you know, look historically how Johnstown residents have struggled with this menace and how over time they've come to grips with it. So where can they come visit you? Uh, Go to our, we're Johnstown Area Heritage Association. So J-A-H-A, jaha.org. Look up, uh, there's essays, there's a page on the, you know, pages on the Johnstown Flood Museum. There's even a campaign video where none other than David McCullough and they endorses our fundraising campaign. Uh, so I'd urge your listeners to, to check us out online. Do what you did, read that McCullough book, uh, The Johnstown Flood. I guarantee that's the fastest book you ever read. Yeah, I, I burned through that pretty quick. Uh, definitely visit the the museum at least online i mean that the exhibits are amazing i can't even imagine what you guys are i know you're in a capital campaign for it right now but what it's going to look like when it's done is is probably just yeah. going to be amazing I mean, well you know i, I did that year. exhibit many years ago 1989 we opened up and uh, ironically i get to do it a second time and the museum technology seen changed so much so there's so much interactive media we're able to just just things we couldn't even have dreamed of you know, 30 years ago. Well, Richard, I can't thank you enough for joining us. It was just a wonderful experience to be able to have someone with a rich history and knowledge about this, uh, about this seminar. Oh, thank you, Adam. It was my pleasure. Thank you. Well, again, we'd really like to thank Richard for joining us and the support of the Johnstown Area Heritage Fund. Find them online at jaha.org. I've actually been to the museum a, a while ago, and I can't really wait to see what the uh, the additions that they're putting in are going to add because it's already a really cool place. Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of amazing to me that this is such an unknown story. I mean, it really person- is. You know, I mean, Adam, as you know, you and I are kind of history geeks. We like these stories, and you know, reading through it and realizing the huge impact it had on America. It's, it's fascinating to me that I did not know about it until you talked to me about it. Well, in Colorado, of course, you have the big Thompson. Everyone knows about that. There's, and again, after doing this research, I want to live nowhere near a dam because I wish I could say that this was a very unique experience, but this has happened in China a bunch. It's happened in the U S a bunch. 
Uh, there's been well, happened three times in Johnstown, right? Uh-huh. It's just uh, just a crazy story. But I guess the, the good is that some good actually did come out of it in the end. But on that note, uh, I think that's going to do it for the Johnstown flood. What are what are we going to do next? So next up is going to be... The Black Plague? Uh, the, you know, something like should. that. The, the influenza epidemic. Yeah. What other dark <laughs> gonna, things can we discuss? We're going to check out grunge music and talk about how it affected popular music in, the, in America. So you can find us on Facebook at American Moments Podcast. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at, at Adam Vanami, A-D-A-M-V-O-N-N-A-H-M-E. And if you want to do us a really big favor and you like our show, please go on to iTunes and give us a five-star rating and a review. If you do that, send me a note directly on Facebook, and I'll shoot you a Starbucks gift card or whatever gift card you feel like you'd want, rather. But everyone likes coffee, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks for all your support, guys, too. We've really enjoyed doing this, and I can't wait to do more. All right. Thanks, Thanks, everybody. Thanks. Thanks.